Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing how the restraints or yamas from the first limb of the eight limbs of yoga offer us a practical way to live life in the highest way, to live a yogic life. My guest today is David McGrath, author of the book we're discussing today, The Yogi's Way, Living in Accord with the Yamas and Niyamas. David is dedicated to sharing the philosophical and psychological principles and practices of yoga with a focus on promoting the holistic capacity of Kriya Yoga to provide insight into what it means to be human and how we can appreciate and live in tune with the fundamental nature of life. David was ordained by Mr. Roy Eugene Davis, a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda and a minister David is a minister within the tradition of Kriya Yoga. In um, He was ordained in 2011. He offers instruction and guidance through one-to-one consultations, organized retreats, online programs, public seminars, workshops, and written publications. David imagines a world awakened in oneness and invites people to follow a path which will allow them to clarify their conscious awareness. You can learn more about David and his teaching on his website, davidmcgrath.ie, and that's David Mc, M-C-G-R-A-T-H dot I-E. You can also follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at David McGrath Therapist. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, David McGrath. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Laurel. Thank you for having me. Before we begin our dialogue about how the ethical principles and practices of yoga guide us to live in the highest way, let's begin, as we like to begin here on the show, with a moment of contemplation, a yoga moment, a moment of being right here, right now. Oh. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our bodies in space, just feeling our bodies, and in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight. Whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our bodies and where they touch the supports. And then turning our attention to the breath, that wonderful tool that's always with us, we notice as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed as it passes through our body. And just staying with the breath, remaining right here, right now. Here is something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien's book, Living the Eternal Way. In our everyday life, 
harmlessness practice affects our relationship with others, self, and the earth. The practices of ecological awareness, health and fitness, compassion, and loving kindness are all based on harmlessness. In its most profound sense, harmlessness is related to love. The Buddha said, hate never once dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. Only love. And for listeners, I should apologize a little bit about my voice. I'm just getting over a cold, so I sound a little nasally. I, it's at a point in the cold where my voice actually sounds worse than I feel. So, <laughs> But uh, David Graff, once again, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest and to discuss the first two limbs of the eight limbs of yoga. Many people, when they hear the word yoga, just think of it as some kind of a fitness <clears throat> routine, think of it as exercise, and are really not familiar with yoga philosophy and really may not be aware that the first two limbs of yoga, so the very beginning of the yoga path, has, deals with ethical principles. The yamas, which we're gonna talk about today, also called the restraints, um, are ethical principles about how we should behave in the world. The niyamas, or adherences, are internal practices and will be the topic of our conversation next week. So we get a part one and part two with you, which is great. Um, your book centers on these ethical principles, and as I mentioned, is titled The Yogi's Way, Living in Accord with the Yamas and Niyamas. I'm especially delighted to have you as a guest because your Kriya Yoga teacher, Roy Eugene Davis, was also the teacher of my teacher, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director of this podcast, so it feels like we're in the same family. So I wanted to start by asking, what inspired you to write a book about the Yamas and Niyamas? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question, considering that it's not necessarily the easiest topic to be able to deliver on. And I can't mm -hmm. say, um, you know, maybe you can tell me from having looked at the book, uh, whether there was success in regards to that or not. But what I found was that the whole system of yoga, like you mentioned there, for some people, when they look at yoga, they think of it as being a type of physical fitness or physical exercise um, routine or practice. And um, it's interesting how yoga has become compartmentalized into breathing processes or exercise um, postures or different techniques for concentration. And I felt that I had been given the privilege to uh, acquire information, acquire the knowledge to be able to practice yoga in accord to the eight limb system that had been put forward by uh, Patanjali. Um, however, um, to my own, I suppose, disappointment, I got to a point when I realized that I hadn't really given the first two limbs, the yamas and niyamas, as much due diligence as they deserved um mm -hmm. i i had incorporated them into my practice you know having had um a knowledge of all eight uh, limbs i did put um a certain degree of emphasis on them in terms of my overall practice but i i fell short 
And I discovered this because uh, I had been very good uh, in adhering to formal meditation practices. I like to call them formal meditation, formal yoga practices, such as the um, asanas and pranayama breathing techniques and the sitting to meditate. And I had been very disciplined in regard to that. But although I had uh, developed approaches for looking at the yamas and niyamas, um, I didn't find myself to have um, really been able to advance and progress in the way that I could in the other areas. Mm -hmm. um, and so when your question was a simple question and to answer it simply, um, why did I actually write about this topic? It's because I had found myself at a point in my own practice when um, it just was blatantly clear that I had neglected what it meant to be a practitioner of yoga in terms of how I was engaging in life. Mm. Um, I think that in order to be able to know how well we're succeeding on this path, we can just look at how well we're able to engage with life. Um, mm. And I had it being, you know, the feedback loop was telling me that, yeah, I was engaging in life in ways which were, you know, they weren't all bad, but it wasn't progressing in the same way when I related to the formal practices, the practices which I, in some ways I, I think we can control a little bit more, you know, that space mm -hmm. that we hide ourselves from the world and we regulate our environment and regulate what's going on for us on a physical mm -hmm. level and an emotional level. We have these techniques to regulate everything. Um, but it's it, we're kind of in control of that. And yeah, it has its own challenges. But the big challenge is when we step out of that little space and we engage in life and then we suddenly get it uh, fed back to us just mm -hmm. uh, how well our practice is serving us. Um, and mm -hmm. I realized that there was a kind of a gap, a gaping hole between the two, the formal practice and the informal practice. And so in, mm -hmm. in regard to writing the book, I um, said about it, you know, uh, rectifying that situation in terms of my own personal practice. And then as a consequence, then I thought, well, this is something I think would be of benefit to others too, mm -hmm. um, regardless of how advanced they might be um, or engaged mm -hmm. they might be with the eight limbs of yoga. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a lovely book. And I did want to just say that uh, the way you've constructed it, um, the team that had reviewed the book, everyone really loved the way you constructed it, which is that you go through, there's five, of these ethical principles that deal with being in the world, the yamas, which we're talking about today, and then there's the five that deal more with our internal processes, the niyamas. So there's 10 altogether. And you cycle through those 10 several times, going deeper yeah. each time. And that has been my experience with the yamas and niyamas, is that each time I come to the study of one of them, um, I, it, it, it is um, the ever new practice of yoga. It, it, you see different things in it and you, when you look at it from a different perspective and you created in the book a way to do that. So I just want to give a plug for the book. I think you did a really, really nice job of that. Thank you. Um, I so think writing... that in, in regard to that, I felt from my own, like you were talking about there, every time you go back to one of the yamas and niyamas and reflect on it again, there's a, it's like you're peeling off a layer and going deeper in your own understanding, gaining greater insight. And it's more subtle. And I, I suppose in the way I've laid out the book, it's to provide the reader or the 
the user, the practitioner, a means to be able to do that for themselves to gradually just peel back those layers. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you uh, found it uh, of use. So that's uh, good feedback. Where Eugene Davis wrote in his book, Seven Lessons in Conscious Living, the quote is, the external yamas and internal niyamas practices remove obstructions to the soul's inclination to be expressive and provide the foundation for effective and progressive authentic spiritual growth. Kind of like what you just said, really. (laughs) Um, And what was always interesting to me, and I think we should focus the rest of the talk really on just the, you know, just the uh, yamas, because we could talk the whole time, you know, if we try and and do an overview of everything. Um, I was always really interested in looking at the ethical principles and the relationship with, uh, with oneness yoga's underlying root. So yoga as a Sanskrit word means union, unity, oneness. Um, And these ethical principles relate to that. So would you talk about that just a bit? Absolutely. Um, It's interesting there when we talk about, you know, yoga being a Sanskrit word, you know, one which we've borrowed into the English language and we do our best to translate it and talk about it and express what it actually means. But conceptually, it's beyond our capacity to conceive. And, and there's a real challenge in there. It's just um, as best, uh, our best attempts to try and define what yoga is, um, is always being challenged by the fact that we can't actually communicate it in words. And I think that's mm. something which is innate to the whole practice is that there's um, uh, a need to try and convey something about the practice, about the system which can't actually be conveyed. Um, mm. And Roy, I remember when Mr. Davis used to give retreats and he'd talk about the yamas and the yamas, and he always said that they're things that a yoga master would do automatically, spontaneously. The, they're almost traits or attributes or characteristics which would be displayed and demonstrated by a yoga master without having to really think about it. It just would come naturally, intuitively, innately to them. And so when I looked at that, when you look at yoga as a term to define this way of being in the world, which we can't actually conceptualize or imagine, we just have to facilitate our working or moving into that experience. When we look at the five specific yamas, again, they're given to us in Sanskrit, um, ahimsa, satya, and, and so on. And, and we can do our best to translate them into English. And then we try to, for example, we translate ahimsa into English and we get it could be non-violence, it could be non-harming, non-hurting. There's many different variations on that. Um, and I think it's that whole um, piece about being able to relate to the concept behind the word that's the challenge. Um, and so it always echoes in my mind what Roy said, that these are characteristics, attributes, which are just innately and spontaneously um, demonstrated. When we think about them, we look at them as an ethical framework, which is okay, that serves purpose. However, it's interesting to think of them in terms of ways to describe what yoga is. Um, So we say yoga is beyond our conception, beyond imagination. But then we could say that, well, the five yamas actually serve as five key five key words to describing what yoga is. Yoga Mm -hmm. is nonviolence. Yoga is truthfulness yoga is this and 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 um 
the other referring to the other yamas and niyamas so we can use them as um the 10 defining words for what yoga is but then we're faced with the challenge of okay but what is ahimsa like what is non-violence or non-harming and then we have to break that down for ourselves um so i think uh, in terms of the process of purification that takes place in order for us to move into a space of experiencing yoga, oneness, consciousness, we're having to um, move away from the reliance on our defining through words and relating it through our conceptual thinking to uh, letting go of the resistances which move us closer and closer into a more subtle understanding of what they mean um mm -hmm. and so referring back to what you had just said um especially just the, that comment that roy made and left such a an impact on me personally um i think that it's it's quite a challenge to to go about describing yoga and then as a consequence to go about describing each one of these characteristics and so we could go as you say we could go on talking about these at length um, <laughs> multiple podcasts so yeah. um yeah so that that process of purification does require a continuous reflection mm. yeah i i wanted to um to touch back on something that you um, that you mentioned, which is that for someone who is a is a yoga master, these practices become automatic, yeah. and I think that part of that is because they are rooted in this idea of oneness. And so, for example, this practice of harmlessness or ahimsa is natural if you are really living in that reality, not the idea, but the reality of oneness, um, yeah. which I would say a, a true yoga master is living in that reality. Um, taking whatever realizations we may have had on the meditation cushion and taking that into the world and, and being able to live from that point, from that reality of oneness, well, then it's easy to be harmless because you realize that when you harm something else um, in the world, you're harming yourself. So um, in that way, I can totally see how it would, these would be natural for some, you know, for someone who was really living in that reality. And for those of us who aren't yet living in that reality and want to get there, it's a way of bringing that realization, our deepest realization from meditation and bringing it into the world in uh, how we, in how we live. Um, and that's why I think that, um, that I also wanted to touch back on something that you said, which is you realized that you hadn't gone as deeply as you wanted to. And I think that there is a, um, there is a feedback loop of how we live in the world and our ability to then experience these various states of meditation. And that's why, to me, that's why the yamas and niyamas are there at the beginning. They're the first two limbs, you know, of this eight limb path. And it's because there is a feedback loop. The more that you can see that in the world and practice harmlessness, practice truthfulness, practice all of these, you know, the five yamas, the more that you're living as a yogi. So in a way, the title of your book is great, The Yogi's Way, um, living, yeah. you know, in, in accord with uh, yamas and niyamas is a great title. Um, David, so the five yamas are harmlessness, truthfulness, non-stealing, as you describe it, walking with absolute reality, which I've also heard described as the right use of vital force, mm -hmm. and non-attachment. Now, we are going to dive more deeply 
into a few of them, but we can't really go into all of them in depth. And so I wanted to mention, we're going to talk about harmlessness and truthfulness in some depth. Did you want to give just a very brief overview of non-stealing, walking with absolute reality and non-attachment, just so we kind of touch on them before we dive more deeply into the first two? Yeah, I can do that. I think before I, I do, I might just reiterate the the my approach to writing the book was very much to allow the practitioner, the reader to see that actually, as you move deeper into understanding and gaining insight into each one of the yamas and niyamas, they start to dissolve and to kind of to merge into being one principle and that principle would is the principle of yoga oneness consciousness um so like you were saying earlier we're not there at that level where we can live as the yoga master so we're giving this framework of the yamas and niyamas to help guide us in doing that but as we do move gradually progressively into gaining greater wisdom and insight you start to see that it's very hard to differentiate between ahimsa Satya, Steya, Parigraha, and Brahmacharya. Um, so it's it's just interesting that now in trying to explain what you know with the, the difference between non-stealing um and uh, right use of vital forces and um and non-attachment, to try and break them down um is 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 just a kind of a, an overview, as you said. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a um but to do that. Yeah, non-stealing, I think it kind of speaks for itself, um, you know, don't steal, but I, it has many layers to it. Um, and I, this is where we'd have to go about our own reflection. But, it, you know, what does not stealing mean for us if we're in our workspace and we decide that it's OK to take a little bit from the stationery or to use the photocopier and then, you know, maybe throw a few extra blank sheets into our own bag. You know, maybe for some people that's all right. For other people, that would be more of verging on the yeah, on the practice of stealing. And you know, that's kind of it. It's non-stealing has multiple layers for it. But I suppose ultimately, what we're getting at is that the what exists in the world, what is an expression of manifested reality, is all serving every other aspect of manifested reality. That there's nothing mm-hmm. is in isolation. And so, in that regard we don't actually possess or own or have dominance over anything. We're just kind of borrowing it <laughs> and given the duty of responsibility over it while it's in our care. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd say that would cover um, Asteya, non-stealing. And then in terms of, yeah, Roy refers to it as the conservation, conservation or right, rightful use of vital forces. I've termed it walking with absolute reality. Um just because it refers to Brahman and there's a whole other discussion there, but mm-hmm. um, I just, I see the idea of life as being unified as one unified expression. And so what we're trying to do is to learn how to be in life with life, not be in life in as in relation to life, but actually as an expression of life itself. Um, Mm. And so in terms of our vital forces or in terms of the resources that we have, the things that we are presented with and that we're um, given opportunity to avail of, to use them in a manner which serves life itself. Um, Mm. And so when we're walking with life, we're walking with an understanding that everything 
is unfolding as everything is going to unfold. Um, and we are moving with that process as an expression of the everything of the one unified mm. expression. Um, <laughs> and so we're doing our best to just walk with that, um, to mm -hmm. just be with that rather than um, uh, opposing it or be living in contradiction to it or just giving out about it and complaining and just to <laughs> kind of be with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, actually well, kind of poetic to describe it as walking with absolute reality. I kind of like it. So, um, but yeah. Anyway, and then non-attachment. And then non-attachment. Um, I, I heard somebody else, I can't remember where, a lot of people have written on the and spoken on the yamas and niyamas, but the idea that non-attachment, we look at attachment and we talk about non-attachment as being um, this kind of like not caring about anything and just kind of giving everything up. But the way I heard it explained and the way I reiterated in the book is that you've got to have attachment, which is a clinging onto, then a detachment, detachment would be just not caring. But non-attachment isn't detachment. Non-attachment is being able to appreciate the, the value of things, but also to appreciate the ebb and flow, the rise and fall, the coming and going. Um, so it's not a case of just having total disregard for things. It's just yeah. more just, again, seeing how life follows its own seasons and uh, that we as expressions of life are moving with those seasons. And so we have to be able to just uh, let go um, when when we're being called upon to do so. And that's uh, mm -hmm. that is the essence of non-attachment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lovely. As a reminder to our listeners, our guest today on the Yoga Hour is David McGrath. David is an educator and coach dedicated to sharing the philosophical and psychological principles and practices of yoga. And today we're talking about his book, The Yogi's Way, living in accord with the yamas and niyamas. And we're focusing today's conversation on the yamas. Next week, he will return and we'll be talking about uh, the niyamas. Uh, his website is David McGrath, and that's M-C-G-R-A-T-H, davidmcgrath.ie. And that link will be on our webpage, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So, David, as I mentioned, I want to dive more deeply into the first two yamas. And the first one is ahimsa, non-harming, non-violence, harmlessness. There's a lot of words that you could use to uh, describe this. Can you talk a bit more about what's the fundamental premise of ahimsa? Yeah. Uh, we're kind of faced, when you asked me to do that, I'm kind of faced with the same challenge again to kind of just simplify an overview. And uh, and I think um, for your listeners, uh, as they move through their own practice, they can kind of, uh, that will resonate with them, that it does, it's not that easy to put this one word to just kind of explain the whole concept. But if we're to try and do so, Ahimsa kind of comes back to the quote, actually, that you of uh, Yogacharya Ellen O'Brien at the beginning. It's it's love. Ahimsa is that the law of attraction or the Sri Yukteswar talked about the the attractive quality within uh, creative, man creative manifestation to just allow the unified expression to evolve and to continue to expand and to grow and to give back to itself and to grow and expand without being limited without mm -hmm. being being held down or being um 
you know, if we're going to put it down in our human terms, being judged or being held back or limited or condemned, it's just to allow it to flow. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think of Ahimsa, that as if it's an expression of love, we talk about it in that way. It's just recognizing again that life is one unified expression and we exist as an aspect. We are an expression mm-hmm. of life um, in this human body that we are facilitating that expression. And so why would we want to get in the way of, mm. in so, so to speak, in the way of ourselves, right? in terms mm-hmm. of why would we want to get in the way of life to just go on expanding and growing and giving back to itself? Why would we want to hinder that? Um, and so it happens in two ways. Uh, hymns, uh, the nonviolence is towards every other expression of life to allow it to flow, but also in terms of ourselves, to allow ourselves to flow and express and to make mistakes and pick ourselves up and to just do what life does. Um, mm. And so Ahimsa is just, I suppose to put simply, um, just allowing life to flow without harming it, without becoming something which is going to oppose it and be against it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Again, kind of poetic. I like it. Mm. Um one of the things that you that you give well, every um, if you uh, have designed the book, so there's a week that you spend on each of these um, on each of these principles, and there's readings and there's exercises, writing, journaling. Um, one of the supplementary exercises that you give the first time we begin the study of harmlessness is you list many words relating to ahimsa. And I liked this, so I wanted to mention it. So you're encouraged to think about how each word helps to describe the practice of ahimsa and to rank each word from one to 10, where one is not effective at all, and 10 is extremely effective in terms of describing ahimsa. Some words that you list, and you have, I don't know, 45 or so words that are there, and I just picked out a couple. So nonviolence, well, that's, you know, one one that we've used already. Calm, bravery, attentiveness, and empowering. So again, calm, bravery, attentiveness, and empowering. And these were thought-provoking words for me to think about how they related to this idea of ahimsa. So I really liked it, and I wanted to you know, bring that exercise out for listeners. What did you hope that people would gain from this exercise? Um, well, really to just question what is the concept that is being shared within the word ahimsa or nonviolence? Because it's very easy for us to just look up a dictionary and get a definition and then think of it as being our definition. But it's not really our definition. Our definition is defined by who we have been through our lives up until now and how we see ourselves and how we habitually relate, relate to the world. And so no book or no dictionary or no teacher can actually just tell us what that word means for us. And we're the only ones who actually can do that. We're the only ones who can arrive at a signification, like a, 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 I suppose, to put it another way, a definition of what the word means. But it's not going to be a simple black and white definition where we say, well, this is what it means for me, because it's it's a very loaded term uh, non-violence as in not loaded negatively but loaded positively that there's there's a lot of different ways to talk about this and your listeners listening to me and I'm talking about it and the definition I put forward and the way I go about explaining it 
it might resonate with them. But if they were given the opportunity to talk about it, they might go about doing it in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And they might use different words. And so I thought that with a practice like this, again, I'm suggesting the words, you know, and as you said, there's about 45 of them, depending on which um, uh, yama or niyama it is. But it just allows a space for the reader uh, of the book to just like you said, reflect on what does that actually mean in relation to nonviolence? What does, how do they correlate? And then in that space of trying to just work around, um, I don't know if I agree or disagree. Why would I agree? Why, why did I not agree? And all of mm -hmm. that is going to be based on your own subjective position. There's no, nothing mm -hmm. is going to interfere, interfere with that, except your own thinking processes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily going to be an easy thing. And it's not necessarily going to just take five minutes to do all the words. Some of the words might hold you up for a while and maybe linger on. But I, I was I was thinking and I had imagined as it was for me when I went through these processes myself, that um, maybe when we think of ahimsa now, it's easier just to say ahimsa than to say nonviolence. Because ahimsa mm -hmm. isn't from our, our native tongue. And so that that word, that word of ahimsa, it symbolizes everything, this whole process. Mm -hmm. Whereas nonviolence is, you know, if you're an English speaker and you take that word, it just, we've heard it in the news. We've heard it, people talking about it. It's just, it's it's got a far more black and white kind of connotation to it. Um, so that's the idea with, the, with this exercise. Yeah. Indeed. And as I was reflecting on some of these, I was thinking that when the first when I was first introduced to these principles, which was more than 20 years ago, my assessment of these words was probably different. Like now, I would say bravery would be very high in terms yeah. of describing ahimsa, whereas I might not have felt that at the beginning when I was first studying that. So yeah. anyway, I, I just thought it was a very rich uh, exercise and I, and I wanted to mention that. Yeah. So as you've um, uh, mentioned, as I've mentioned, you go through these 10 principles over and over again in the book, mm -hmm. diving into them again and again. So um, this is from a, a later um, dive into harmlessness. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to read a little uh, quote from the book, which is from farther in the book, uh, from page 141, if you're, if you're curious. Um, the um, here it goes. Here's the quote. Demonstrating harmlessness requires us to appreciate fully the wholeness of life. It hangs on our recognizing every aspect of creation to be intrinsically connected and interdependent. Success in nonviolence begins with our ability to see apparent individual existence as being part of the unified expression of life itself. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Success in nonviolence begins with our ability to see apparent individual existence as being part of the unified expression of life itself, which I think is just really, it's a beautiful way of putting what we've been talking about in terms of this oneness, you know, aspect of life. Did you want to comment further on that? Um, If not, I'll ask I, you a different well, question. Well, well, just what comes to my mind is it's it's the vastness of the concept, isn't it, and the beauty of it. Um, yeah. the, you know, we talked about the un we talk about the unified expression of life, and then our being part of it. But there's a there's a very reassuring, beautiful. Uh, you've used the word poetic a few times, but it's kind of this this 
it's very elusive and we can't get our head around it, but it's very attractive and we want to get in there. Um, and then how, when we talk about ahimsa in terms of our day-to-day -day practice, what does it actually mean? What do I have to do? What what am I supposed to be, um, be uh, what am I supposed to be doing or how am I supposed to be behaving? How am I going to measure my own um, practicing ahimsa? How does that look for me? How would I find it to be sufficient mm -hmm. or up to scratch? Where's my standard on it? It's, it's just, it goes from the vast right down to the particular of our day-to-day -day experiences. And I think that that's no easy feat. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's very easy for us to talk and theorize around these things. And then when it comes down to our own individual experience, where we're very much left on our own, we can have read books, we can have attended the retreats and listened to the different people talking about it, but we're left on our own. And then it's like, well, what does it mean for me to be practicing ahimsa and for you you mm -hmm. said now at this point in your life meaning bravery like that you you know that echoes back to me as a certain position you know but that's my interpretation but you'll have your own reason for behind that but for another other individual maybe non-violence just means just being quiet and just mm -hmm. you know taking a kind of a more of a uh, an observing position and maybe for other people mm -hmm. non-violence means actually speaking up more where they're just mm -hmm. allowing, you know, so there's just, a, there's no black and white and the, the spectrum yeah. of it is the fascinating part. Um, mm -hmm. Very easy to get lost in, but mm. that's the idea is through the constant reflection. And as you said, the book is laid out with a reoccurring uh, moving through each of the yamas and niyamas um, just to be able to ensure that we are progressively reflecting on how we are engaging in each, mm -hmm. with each one of these. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier that um, that as you have uh, gone through your study of yoga, that your your conception of ahimsa has gotten more subtle. I think you maybe said that not yeah. about ahimsa, but about all of them. Um, and yeah. I would echo that. And maybe that's why I said the thing about bravery, because mm -hmm. the thing is that you first start noticing ways that you're harming others, for example, or yourself, you know, even in kind of m more global ways. And you yeah. and you don't notice the more subtle things. And then as you go, there's more, it's like, oh my gosh, I, that voice in my head has been saying this to me for so long and I didn't even realize the, harm, the harmfulness of that. Um, and so that's the bravery is to continually find new ways <laughs> that yeah. you have not been living in in a in a in a manner consistent with with uh, um, harmlessness and to keep going and to keep seeing because there's always more to see which is something that I can say after 20 years um, more than 20 years on the path um, there's always something more you know to see there uh, even when I go back to a principle like ahimsa every time I look at it there's something new to see did you have you had a similar um, evolution in your practice of ahimsa as you've studied it over the years. Yes, with, with Ahimsa and all of the um, Yamas and Niyamas, they're just that it progressively becomes more subtle. Um, what, you said something there which I just wanted to kind of talk on was uh, the the idea that we, we it's like, oh my God, I've been, I, I kind of knew this all along, but <laughs> I didn't I didn't really pay attention to it. And it's interesting just that because it's all going on within us, you know, it's all going on within us and the resistances, which may have been stronger at one time, become less 
strong uh, as we move uh, as we progressively move through it so you have you're in a space where you can actually start to listen to some of the things that you're you know to be true but at another point you're just very good at quelling them and kind of distancing yourself from them it's just very it's fascinating how it's kind of a getting to know yourself you know getting mm -hmm. to know yourself expressing <laughs> through the mind um, mm -hmm. and when we talk about yoga as being that process of purification moving into a space where we can facilitate appreciating the oneness of everything um, as a process of purification we're gradually letting go of those resistances um, and so I have definitely experienced it um, and sometimes it's subtle and it's just a little trickle you don't really you can't measure it out so much but sometimes you get an awful wallop from life and you kind of go oh yeah <laughs> I see now where I was missing that you know yeah so it can happen yeah. in different ways yeah so moving on I wanted to move to the uh, second yama of uh, truthfulness which is intertwined with yeah. harmlessness what let's start by saying what is the fundamental premise of satya or truthfulness um the fundamental premise of satya truthfulness truth is is, is definitely one of those worded concepts that is just very abstract isn't it it's just what's truth um and we we all we all grew up as children being told what's right and what's wrong and you know we have this lovely image that everything is kind of going to be perfectly we're going to be perfectly able to say tick or x beside everything and um, but it's not that easy and on some occasions it's especially with the complexity of our lives it can be extremely gray um mm -hmm. and we're left again uh to our own devices you know we can talk to our partners or our friends or you know the other people in our lives to try and get an opinion on what we should do or what was the right thing or the wrong thing and but ultimately it comes back to us um, especially when we're on uh, in those occasions when we're on our own and we have to make that executive decision on our own of what is a white way right way to move forward and what would be um, a less right way or incorrect way to move forward and so when we talk about truthfulness I don't think it's absolute in the, within created manifestation I don't my personal um perception of it is that is it's not concrete it can't be said it's one way or another um, and so I think that the practice of uh, of satya is a practice of continuously discerning how to relate to life so that it is appropriate for life to be able getting back to ahimsa to be able to just continue to flow to be able to continue mm -hmm. to express harmoniously for the betterment of everybody uh, for the betterment of every single expression of life um so as as we exist within our human form and we're existing as an expression of life we have this position of responsibility and we see things going on and we engage with the different aspects of life and then we're met with uh, an occasion where we need to decide are we going to act this way or act that way and it's not necessarily right or wrong in either way but which one would be more in in line with facilitating that expression of life which would be mm -hmm. which would allow that to occur and that's the way i like to think of satya um truthfulness and i think when we were talking there about the the process of purification that yoga invites us to advance along it's um 
it, it requires truthfulness to a degree that when we start the process, I know for myself, when I started engaging in yoga practice, I wasn't able to be as truthful with myself as maybe mm. <laughs> I, I consider myself to be now. Um, mm. But it's no fault of my own. It's just that it was a, it, it, it it's this ability to move beyond fear of actually living with truth to accept that um life is gray um and the the things that are going on are not always easily discernible but that we can practice our capacity to try and discern um and mm -hmm. as we do it within our life situations it comes back to us doing it with ourselves and then we hold ourselves to a higher standard and we expect ourselves to be more discerning the next time round and the next time round and we start to refine our own capacity to use our intellect to say this is yes not this this is yes not this and we just mm -hmm. get better at mm -hmm. that um yeah. and and as a consequence of um doing that we kind of experience more flow um, we experience more integrity in ourselves and we experience life being more, um, not going to say easy, they still have the challenges, but your relationship to those challenges is not going to be one of victimization. It's going to be one where mm -hmm. you're still an expression of life. You're still part of the flow, the the play of everything that's going on. You're not being attacked. Um, it's, so you're able to distinguish and, um, what's what's true in terms of the unified expression expressing rather than what's true from your own little internalized narrative um mm -hmm. yeah I, I may have spoken a little bit or two anyway, that was quite at length so maybe you'd like to clarify some of that or say something no else. no that was great i was just going to say that um i agree in this in this external realm of uh, life that we all are suspended in, that there are all these shades of gray and it is difficult to discern. And I think it does call on our discernment, which does improve over time, particularly as mm -hmm. our meditation practice deepens. But I was also going to point out that there is an absolute truth that is beyond, you know, all that, all of the changing, um, all of the changing thoughts, changing emotion, changing circumstances, there is, you know, another another way of describing absolute consciousness is absolute truth. And so that's that oneness that we, you know, talked about. So for me, that is never in question. Um, yes. I don't always remember it, but, but that's never, that's never, um, you know, something that, that changes. That's not a shade of gray. Um, but yeah. everything that's in this realm, I would totally agree with you that it does require us to have a discernment and, um, you know, to to tell um, and, and and our perceptions do change over time as everything in this world uh, can change and they become more subtle. As we were talking about with Ahimsa, the same thing happens, you know, with Satya, we see more opportunities to practice truthfulness the more that we that we do it. Um, yeah. I did want to ask you about how. Uh, truthfulness or satya is interwoven with harmlessness. And I'm particularly thinking about speech, for example, um, and that, you know, for example, uh, there is uh, some someone is um, is uh, asking for feedback, say, uh, you know, do you like this dress or, you know, this top or whatever? And it can yeah. be brutal, you know, to just be truthful, you know, about Absolutely. it. And so, um, you know, and so it, it's the two practices to me really go hand in hand. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I, 
I would agree. Um, I think that Ahimsa kind of wins out, you know, <laughs> getting back to that idea of life being one expression and it's just wanting to get on with it. It's just wanting to have the freedom to express without being imposed upon. Um, and uh, that is... Uh, that expression is real. That is what is real. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. Um, and when we're when we're subject to it, when we're in relation to it, um, it's very easy for us to start picking out what what's right or what we think is right and what we think is wrong, and go about that. Um, go about um, looking at life in that way. Um, but all this, all the while, it's just going to be always trying to do what it does best, which is just to express. And so if if we break that down or we bring it back into the, like, the particulars of our life and we're sitting around a dinner table and somebody's made food and maybe it's not the best, but they've put in a lot of care, they're trying to express, they're trying to be a part of life. They're trying to allow life to expand and grow and share. And they're doing They're doing what life does as an expression of life. And there we're sitting there as an expression of life. We're supposed to do what life does as well. So would life turn around and say, hey, listen, that was awful. And I don't think I'm ever going to be back here again. You know, it just doesn't seem in sync with what life would do. Um, and so life itself, you could imagine life would say, okay, it wasn't the best, but what could I do to make it better? Maybe I could, you know, give, give them a cookbook for Christmas. Or, you know, maybe, you know, you <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. always there's always an interesting thing to think about. Well, what you can say that's truthful. It's like I so appreciate all the effort that you put into this meal, yeah. <laughs> and well, the, the, I really the, the, am so grateful that you invited me. It's been lovely to spend this yeah. time with you. <laughs> that's it. I suppose it's it's hard in those moments. You know, it's hard in those yeah. moments to get it right. You know, it's very easy for yeah. us to talk about the situation now, but yeah, it would be ideal to be able to still allow the. To the expression of life to flow unhindered so you might be best to say what was the thing that i really enjoyed it was being here with everybody and being part of this occasion and so that's what i'm going to celebrate and that's what i'll talk about and that would be a fantastic thing but we have all had the experience when we just say a little bit too much maybe we start with that but then we go on to talking about how the dessert was the best part and the other stuff we're not so sure about so we we kind of overstep the mark sometimes that's great. I can imagine Sorry, that dinner table. I, we might just overstep the mark sometimes. And then in hindsight, we can realize that we overstepped the mark. But I think we have to go easy on ourselves because it is a process. And we, you know, you're not just a master straight away. Um, there is a, a process of purification taking place. And like you said, um, just that that capacity to discern, to to that capacity to attune with the absolute truth. The, the truth in the inner awareness, the knowingness, the the knowingness might be the wrong term, but being attuned to the purusha, the seer, the observer, just to be able to be with that in those moments, if, if we're uh, able to remind ourselves to sit with that, um, then maybe just saying nothing would be the thing that we'd be inclined to do, mm -hmm. or we, mm -hmm. we can be guided by that absolute truth, which is stillness. Um, and that can kind of inspire our next move. But okay. it's a whole process and it's it's all entangled. So remembering to stay attuned to ourselves as the seer at a dinner party mightn't be the thing that naturally occurs, you know, that that's so that's where our formal meditation practices would come in. Yeah. Yes, indeed. 
And we have come to the end of our time together. I did want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with any words of inspiration or encouragement about the practice of the of the yamas that we've been talking about. What would you like to leave with our listeners? What comes to my mind right now, just off the cuff, is that it's a framework for us to be able to measure how well we're getting on with being an expression of life. So rather than using it as a tool to beat ourselves up or to, you know, raise our standards for ourselves, which are just impossible or to just make lives more complicated and difficult. It's not about that. It's about letting life just be life. So we're using it as a framework to measure and to have a toolbox which we can use to do that measuring rather than just wondering uh, so um well you know the book <laughs> the idea of the book but whatever means it takes to reflect on these individual principles is worth the time and the effort just to be able to measure what it is mm that is going on for you in how you engage with yourself and how you engage with life and everyone around you. Thank you. For listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today is yoga teacher, mentor, and author David McGrath. And we've been discussing his book, The Yogi's Way, Living in Accord with the Yamas and Niyamas. His website, where you can find out more about him and his teaching, is David McGrath, and that's M-C-G-R-A-T-H dot I-E. You can hear more of his programs on his YouTube channel at Kriya Yoga Meditation Living. We'll also publish his links on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, David, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour, and I look forward to our conversation next week when we continue and talk about the Niyamas. Absolutely. I really enjoyed today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. CSE offers daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., the afternoon at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. All those times are Pacific time. We also offer Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. You can hear uh, past talks from Yogacharya O'Brien on her YouTube channel, Ellen Grace O'Brien, as well as her website, ellengraceobrien.com. And there's another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program, which is Kriya Yoga Today, which includes talks from Yogacharya O'Brien presentations from classes, etc. You can access this through the CSE web website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, that's Kriya Yoga Today. Yogacharya O'Brien will be leading the upcoming Kriya Yoga Meditation Retreat, which is happening June 22nd to 25th, 2023. It is offered both online and in person at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. You can find out more about these classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment at their website, csecenter.org. Again, David McGrath will be back with me next week to talk about uh, more about his book, The Yogi's Way. We will continue our dialogue on living a spiritually conscious life, focus on focusing on the niyamas or adherences. 
The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and if you are enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Soap. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.